0: Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. However, even in these uncertain times, we will be certain to follow our life's calling to take care of the sick, the hurting, and those that demand and need our medical attention. This is Clinical Pearls. Well, whether you can attest to this personally, or if you've heard it through patients, the truth is, the idea of trying to make a baby sounds a lot more fun than it actually is. Why? Because the act of trying to make a baby can actually be pretty darn stressful for a couple. As an OBGYN physician, I often get asked by couples, what's the best time to have sex? Or in what position should we try to have sex in order to get pregnant? Well, Is there a better position than another? So I thought in this podcast, I would cover the ASRM's new committee opinion on optimizing natural fertility. No, this is not about infertility. We can leave that podcast for another time. This is how to give patients advice on how they can maximize their chances of conception. Ready? Let's cover the ASRM's new Practice Committee on Optimizing Natural Fertility from January 2022. All right, podcast family, this practice bulletin from ASRM, remember, that's the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, was released in January 2022 to provide a framework for counseling women and men about how they may optimize the likelihood of achieving natural, non-medically assisted pregnancy when there's no past medical history and no past history of infertility. Remember, we said we're not going to really focus on evaluation of infertility, although that may follow if these patients don't conceive by themselves after a certain amount of time remember that the definition of infertility is the failure to achieve a successful pregnancy after 12 months or more of regular vaginal unprotected intercourse. However, if there's other issues like PCOS or if the mother, if the woman is more than 35 years of age or more, then you can begin an evaluation after six months without conception. One of the things that can put patients at ease, I think, when they come in after two or three months of trying to get pregnant and nothing is happening, is just to relate to them and to explain the monthly chance of pregnancy in a typical cycle. Assuming that nothing else is going on, the probability of pregnancy per month in a couple having unprotected intercourse is called the monthly fecundability. That's a great word, isn't it? fecundability. And the average monthly fecundability for an average age couple. Now, the average age couple is defined as less than 35. Sorry, guys, that's just what it is. But it's not very high at all. It's actually averages only about 0.2 up to 0.24 per month. That's like 20 to 24 percent. So it's not very high. That's why you got to try more than once, and sometimes it takes more than two or three months to get pregnant. Actually, ASRM states that about 80% of couples will conceive in the first six months of attempting pregnancy. However, out of those six months, the highest monthly fecundability is actually greatest in the first three months relative fertility is decreased however based on age remember that when a woman turns 40 that's 40 she has about half the fertility compared to a woman in the late 20s or early 30s which is their time of peak fertility Fertility also varies among populations and declines with age in both women and men, but the effect of age is much more pronounced in women because it's very slightly affected in men. There is an age-related decline in the chance of pregnancy and life birth, corresponding to an increased risk of aneuploidy and miscarriage with increasing maternal aging. Although semen parameters in men also decline detectably after 35 years of age, male fertility really doesn't appear to be appreciably affected before the age of about 50. And after 50, although fertility in men can change a little bit, it's just a small decrease compared to that decrease in women. Okay, we've established that as baseline. Now let's get into the fertile window. So if you're asked on the oral boards or by your patients, when's the best time to have sex, it actually is not the day of ovulation, but in the days immediately preceding ovulation. The fertile window is best defined as the six-day interval ending on the day of ovulation. Peak fecundability has been observed when intercourse occurs within two days before ovulation. In other words, it's best to have sperm already present already in the tube or the mid or distal portion of the tube at time of ovulation the likelihood of pregnancy has been noted to be greatest when intercourse occurs the day before ovulation up to two days prior. And it actually starts to decline when intercourse occurred on the day of ovulation itself. And here's the depressing part. After ovulation, the chance of having pregnancy or conception at 24 hours after the act of ovulation is zero. Well, that's your clinical pearl. The best time to give advice for timed intercourse is from 24 to 48 hours before the expected time of ovulation. Well, I'm totally going to go off script, but I just thought of this and it made me chuckle. In the last segment, I just said, when is the best time to have sex? Well, I remember one medical school class had to be maybe two or three years ago, and we're talking about fertility. And so I asked that question, when's the best time to have sex? And of course, one of the male students raised his hand and said, The best time to have sex is whenever she says yes. Sorry, I had to go there. Okay, back to the podcast. Well, in that last segment, we covered the idea that timed intercourse is one or two days before the expected time of ovulation. But that only works, of course, if the patient has regular periods and kind of can predict when ovulation is occurring at mid-cycle. Remember that ovulation typically is two weeks before the anticipated date of that next menses. You see, remember the intro? I said that sometimes the act of trying to have conception can actually be pretty stressful because you're trying to get it right into that time and trying to predict that ovulation. Now, without the aid of ancillary tests, that can be kind of a shot in the dark and can be, again, stressful. But there are things that can be done to try to give an increased perception or at least increased predictive value of ovulation. Use of fertility tracking methods to determine the fertile window and approximately time intercourse is associated with an increased probability of conceiving in an ovulatory cycle. Fertility tracking methods include the calendar method with or without the assistance of some smartphone app, and you can also do things like checking cervical mucus or checking the LH surge ovulation detection kits monitor urinary LH excretion to try to determine or predict the day of ovulation. Now remember, nothing is perfect and these aren't dead and fast rules. These are just kind of suggestions that can help timing of intercourse. But just because your LH surge showed up positive doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen because there are some false positives. In general though, urinary LH predictors can predict ovulation within 24 to 48 hours before the actual ovulation occurs. So again, it's just one other test that can be done as an ancillary factor to try to time intercourse in a more scientific way. Well, here's another clinical pearl. If you're ever asked what the false positive rate is for these LH kits, the ASRM says that false positive test results can occur in about 7% of cycles. Now that we have the timing down packed, what about frequency of intercourse? Because that's actually floated around the medical circles for some time. It was have sex every day, and then it went to have sex every other day. Well, the truth is, the frequency of intercourse is based on whatever the couple really wants to do. But there is some science here to guide this. Now, this is kind of weird. It is actually data that abstinence intervals greater than 5 days may actually affect sperm counts and that longer abstinence intervals of greater than 10 days semen parameters actually can begin to deteriorate. You know that data was put out by a man. Anyway, although studies of semen parameters provide some useful quantitative data, the truth is that that data may not accurately predict the true functional integrity or capacity of sperm. Well, that's about waiting long intervals between intercourse. But what about having intercourse more frequently? I mean, is that bad? Does that actually affect sperm count? Well, the answer is probably no. There's been no decrease in sperm parameters with intercourse as frequent as every day or every other day. Although evidence suggests that daily intercourse during the fertile window may actually have a slight advantage, specific recommendations regarding the frequency of sex may induce unnecessary stress in a couple. So couples should be told that reproductive efficiency increases with the number of intercourse during the fertile period and is highest when intercourse occurs every one to two days during that six-day fertile window. But they can have sex as much or as infrequent as they want, knowing of course that the less sex that they have during that fertile window may actually decrease their chance of conception. Alright, time to get into some of the fun stuff. What about coital practices? I love how ASRM calls it coital practices. Well, there sure are some weird ideas here. And the truth is, that's pretty much all they are is weird because they're not really evidence-based. Although many women think that remaining supine for a certain set time after intercourse can help facilitate sperm transport and prevents leakage of semen from the vagina. Well, this belief really is just not evidence-based sperm deposited at the cervix at mid-cycle can actually be found in the fallopian tube within 15 minutes. In some studies, they can actually be found as fast as 5 minutes. Now, I've heard this study before, and it's referenced in the ASRM New Committee Opinion. And I just think this is so remarkable. I mean, the body is just really incredible. Now, the uterus is meant to not just have efflux of blood out during menstruation and to expand during pregnancy, but it also it serves to kind of have a wick effect. Listen to this. There's been studies done where labeled particles have actually been placed in the posterior vaginal fornix at various times of a woman's menstrual cycle, and they've actually been observed to have transport into the fallopian tube within as little as two minutes during the follicular phase. It's interesting that these particles were observed only in the tube adjacent to the ovary that contained the dominant follicle and not in the contralateral tube. In other words, that dominal follicle, that graphene follicle, has like a GPS tracking system for substances to come up the uterus into the tube to find it. Is that wild or what? Now, some have argued that orgasm itself has a function to try to wick semen up the uterus to allow for conception. Well, while the uterus does have some contractions and the pelvic floor definitely contracts during orgasm, orgasm is definitely not necessary for conception. Well, what about positions? Is there one position better than the other? Well, the truth is, they can do whatever the couple wants to do, as long as it's consensual and no one's getting hurt. But there's no evidence that coital positions actually affects fertility. Sperm can be found in the cervical canal seconds after ejaculation, regardless of coital position. Oh, by the way, I've also been told by some younger adolescents, remember I have a college-age population, who, I mean, there's stuff, weird stuff out there, guys. They're like, no, we only have sex standing up, so we don't use a condom because I've heard I can't get pregnant that way. What? Just weird stuff. Well, in talking about sexual or coital practices itself, what about vaginal lubrication? Because the data is kind of confusing there. A lot of the data actually comes from in vitro studies, which we all know is not necessarily the same as in vivo. For example, some vaginal lubricants may actually decrease fertility on lab testing in vitro in a bench model, like even water-soluble lubricants can actually affect sperm motility by 60 to 100%, but that's on a bench model. At the same time, some over-the-counter lubes, olive oil, and even saliva has been found to affect sperm motility and velocity, but on bench models. The truth is, although some lubricants may adversely affect sperm parameters in vitro in a lab setting, the use of lubricants in couples attempting conception has not been shown to affect psychofecundability compared with non-use. So the clinical pearl is, although some lubricants may actually affect sperm motility in vitro, it probably doesn't do very much in vivo. So, lube away if that's what they want to do. Well, podcast family, as we come to the end, a quick word about the most commonly used drug worldwide. No, it's not marijuana, and no, it's not opioids, although that's still out of control. The most commonly used drug worldwide is what? It's caffeine. Yep, and I have a problem myself. So, patients often ask, hey, does caffeine affect my chances of getting pregnant? Well, according to ASRM, high levels of caffeine consumption, that's defined as greater than five cups of coffee per day or greater than 500 milligrams, has been associated with slightly decreased fertility. But that doesn't mean that caffeine is out of the picture 100%. Moderate caffeine consumption, defined as one to two cups of coffee a day or 200 to 300 milligrams daily, doesn't seem to have any adverse effect on pregnancy or on fertility in order to get pregnant. Now, here's the one concept that seems a little unfair. Although more severe caffeine consumption in women may decrease fertility, caffeine consumption in men seems to have no effect on semen parameters or function. I know, it's unfair, but that's what the data says. Now, as we come to an end, I did mention marijuana, so I think it's important to talk about cannabis, especially since several states have it legalized. Well, one study did find that the prevalence of infertility was increased in ovulatory women who reported using cannabis. Men who smoke cannabis also have been reported to have 29% lower sperm counts than men who have never smoked cannabis. And a dose-dependent effect of cannabis on sperm counts has also been reported. But, of course, the data is conflicting data from the National Survey of Family Growth and the North American Preconception Cohort Study actually found that there was no association between male or female cannabis use and time to get pregnant. So go figure. Now, just to be legit, I have to say the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists does recommend that women who are pregnant or who are trying to become pregnant discontinue cannabis because of the adverse effects of smoking and the potential concerns for impaired fetal neural development. All right, podcast family, we're done. So remember, this wasn't about infertility. This is just about trying to guide couples who ask, hey, we're trying to get pregnant. What should we do? Well, of course, have a healthy diet. Take a prenatal vitamin to increase folate levels to prevent neural tube defects. Get your blood pressure or blood sugar under control if that's an issue. If the BMI is higher, try to bring that down. And above all, just adopt a healthy lifestyle. Remember, this is part of the preconception consult. Make sure that infections are taken care of, that vaccines are given, and unless they have something odd in their gynecological or medical history, that they use this information as ways to optimize natural fertility. All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. Spread the word about Clinical Pearls because, as always, we're trying to grow because this really is our passion. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.